0: Welcome back to the Gray Malkin Lane Podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1970s, except when we go to flashback month, which we've been doing regularly on the show lately, and then we take a book from 1997. Uh, Today we get to read an incredible story set uh, at the beginning of Generation X. Uh, We're going to be reviewing Generation X minus one. We'll talk about that issue a little bit later and I'll give it a pretty good setup. But I am so Thrilled to be joined by my friend uh, John Dietrich from the Avenging Hour podcast, as well as two people I am meeting for the first time that I am huge fans of, uh, both Puder and Grunbeck and Philip Seavey. I am such a fan of both of your work and I'm so happy you're both here. Uh, Let me have you each introduce yourselves. Let us know your gender pronouns, where we might know you from, and a question for today based on today's issue. Tell us about a fancy party
1: you've been to before. Uh, Can we start with Philip? Sure, I'm Philip CV. I use he, him pronouns. I am primarily an artist in comics, though I spent the last couple of years writing and drawing stuff as well. Um, books like Triage, uh, Kepler with Dark Horse Comics. I also spent an extended period of time drawing Tomb Raider over at Dark Horse as well, and I've just started doing some X-Men Unlimited work at Marvel. Um, and then, let's see, a fancy party I've been to. I mean, like, My partner and I love any excuse to dress up. So no matter what party we throw or go to, we're always asking for uh, the dress code. So the last fancy thing we dressed up for was New Year's where we went out uh, just kind of to a bar uh, in downtown Salt Lake and just it was a Studio 54 themed party. So my partner was like a sequined uh, flared leg jumpsuit and then I was like all in black with anything I could pull to kind of step up to their level, so.
0: I, uh, Philip and I, when we were emailing back and forth after a few, we realized we live like 30 minutes away from each other in Utah, which is nuts. <laughs> but it's so great to meet you, man. Uh, let's go over to Turun next.
2: All uh, right. You did that so well, Philip. I, I don't know how to uh, follow that. I'm Torun, Turun Torun Grunbeck. Uh, I never know how to say my my name in English. Usually, uh, I usually just go, "Oh, do you know the god Thor?" It's just Thor un because I'm named after Thor, which is very pleasing because I'm also I, I write for Marvel, and one of the books that I'm writing currently is Thor. Uh, I also do Punisher War Journal. Um, I, I've done a bunch of Valkyrie stuff, Jane Foster Valkyrie. Uh, and right now I'm writing my first Darth Vader comic, which is just, just a short story, but it's still the most fun ever. As for fancy parties, I do a bunch of fancy parties, but the thing about the fancy parties is you can't really tell the, you, you can't tell the stories you want to tell when you go to the fancy parties with the fancy dresses and everything. But I will say that, um we do i'm from norway if you couldn't tell by my name uh and we do midsummer like properly uh and and i'm very into it so if you ever see on my instagram if you ever see me like in full flowers and 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 it looks like i'm i've lost my mind that's my midsummer parties and if you ever like in norway you should come over for my midsummer parties they're that great.
0: sounds like so much fun. Uh, and then let me turn it over to my co-host
3: today, John Dietrich. Hi, John. Hey, I'm John Dietrich. I use he, him pronouns. I am co-host of The Avenging Hour, which kind of does what Great and Lane is doing, but with The Avengers. Um, and I work in state politics. So the kind of parties I go to that are fancy are full of politicians and lobbyists and are not really particularly enjoyable so i don't have any i certainly don't have any stories i could i could say on mic about them because
0: i would like to keep my job uh and then lastly i'm Chad anderson i use he him pronouns you know me as the host of this show i uh when i came out at the age of 32 i grew up in just kind of rural communities and my first time ever going to a gay club my friends were like show up dress nice and I showed up in like a button down flannel shirt that was too big for me and like a pair of jean shorts. And they were like, oh, no, no, no. And they took me to a store and bought me like tight jeans and a tight shirt. And I'm like, Ooh, I don't think I can wear these. But then I got attention at the bar and it was fantastic. I feel like the first really fancy party I ever went to, I tried really hard to dress nice. And everyone else there was like just dressed to the nines. And I had like a, suit jacket and a tie on i'm like oh man <laughs> like, I, I gotta learn how to dress still uh later today we're going to be talking about a uh a very terrible time that a young emma frost had at a very large party <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get to that later in the episode uh Tarun, can i start with how would you like me to say your name today should i just
2: say thorin is that <laughs> it's perfect it, it the thing is you say my name with confidence that's what i just just Go for it. Whatever you want. I'll answer to anything at this point. <laughs> what, what, what bothers me is when people get really like, oh, oh, please, I want to say it. I want to say it correctly. And I have to stand there and, and say my name over and over and over again. Uh, and, and usually people will not get it quite right. So just whatever you want.
0: I uh, I feel like you've been on a number of American shows where they're like, hey, everybody, welcome to Thor and Gronbeck. And they're just like butchering your name. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: it uh, what I love Americans, but they, you you do try to get things right, which I, I do really appreciate it. Um, well,
0: so for today, I will say Thorin, uh, <laughs> to simplify recognizing Beautiful. that's not correct. Uh, so Thorin, I have followed your work at Marvel for quite some time. Your work with the character Valkyrie, uh, more than one version of Valkyrie Jane Foster as Valkyrie and Runa as Valkyrie, and even Danny Moonstar as Valkyrie. Uh, you've done an incredible amount of work with these characters over the last several years kind of starting working with Jason Aaron and then branching off and doing some really incredible work. My favorite thing about your work is the sense of scope. You build really huge stories and it feels like a very natural pacing with escalation and then very good resolution, but you work in this beautiful way of of character narration along the way. And I even sent you a couple emails about this. Your ability to reflect on characters' journeys and histories in just a simple caption box completely changes our understanding. Uh, your work J- with Jane Foster is just, it touches my heart. And Runa, who is a lesbian icon, of course, we uh, we love this character. Tell us a little bit about your journey in from a fan into professional and working at Marvel.
2: Well, first of all, thank you that you said a bunch of really lovely things there. Um, It's always strange to me to hear people talk about my work also because uh, I started working for Marvel right before the pandemic hit. Uh, So I haven't really been out meeting the readers at all. Uh, And it it always, when I, now that I'm from time to time leaving the house and I get to talk to people, it it, it is a very strange, but very lovely thing to hear people kind of uh, that they've read your work and they've thought about it in any capacity. I I enjoyed. Um, I I would say I I started writing Valkyrie because Al Ewing had to quit the book and they needed another co-writer. Jason Aaron was uh, writing it with Al, um, and I think Jason just figured like I'm I'm Norwegian. I'm named after Thor. I love comics. She should be a perfect fit. Uh, but they, they'd they already kind of figured out how to, to write the Valkyrie book. So they had uh, Jane's inner monologue going. Um, so I kind of started writing it as they wrote it. Uh, and then at some point, I kind of just took the ball and fucked off. Um, and Jason kind of let me. He, he was always very kind of like he, he was there when I needed him. Um, but he just let me do whatever I wanted, uh, and then. But I could call him and be like, "Hey, I'm stuck." Or uh, what I really enjoyed, like in the beginning, I'd never written anything that w- would include people kind of yelling and talking during fights, um, and and I, it didn't occur to me that you should have people say cool things as they punched each other, um, and, and Jason kind of go over and be like, "Oh, we should, we should." Add in some things here. Um, so but it, it was, I would say it was the best possible way to get into writing for Marvel because uh, I could do whatever I wanted, and I had Jason, uh, he had my back, and I was writing Valkyrie, uh a character I absolutely adored. Um so, so it was just a great experience, all around great experience.
0: When uh, we've talked about Jane Foster a little bit on this show in the past, there's a couple of classic images from her in the 1960s, just swooning over Thor, like "I wish I could just take care of him and make him food and polish his hammer and take." <laughs> it's just this kind of, she's always the kidnapped victim. Uh, we talked to Russell Downerman on the show a while back about helping design her costume when she became the female Thor. Not even the female Thor; she just became Thor. Uh, that now has been interpreted in the movies. Uh, we've also seen the character uh, uh, Runa the Valkyrie kind of debut in the movies and then get uh, a large amount of space in the uh, comics from there. Uh, let me hear your thoughts on these two characters and what it's like to write them. And I would love to hear some of your thoughts on what it's been like to interpret Marvel's version of Norse mythology <laughs> into your <writing laughs> as well.
2: <laughs> well, I- like the two like jane foster is full of heart uh and and like i like to think about like jane does what you should do and runa does what i want to do you know like when jane uh will forgive and Uh, have some sort of like reflective moment like Runa will punch someone and I appreciate that I really enjoy I mean I I, between the two I certainly would like to do what Runa is doing more often um but but it it, I mean they're, they're very different characters but they're so enjoyable to write together uh and and kind of bringing uh, we never kind of explicitly said that we were bringing the uh, Tessa Thompson's Valkyrie into the comics, but it's obviously implied. Um, and I, I watched her like I kind of feel like I, I, I'm not gonna uh, guess too much what they were thinking when they were because they they do allude to. Uh, Runa being at least bisexual in the, in the movies, but they never kind of do anything with it, which I think is a little disappointing. Um, but we kind of wanted to do things with it. Uh, and because she is uh, kind of living life uh, and, and kind of reacquainting herself with life, uh, I, I would like to see at least some horniness. I know we're in America, and apparently you've stopped being horny, um, I don't. <laughs> I <know>. haven't stopped. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with you guys, I don't know. Uh, it's just uh, so I do try to kind of bring her, like she she would be hungry for everything. So you you kind of see her um, try some different things and reflect on different things, and I I really I, I enjoy that. I had some some people. She she kisses uh, a woman in the my Thor run um and it was in the preview pages and i'm i was i was taking over for donny Cates just for like i'm just doing seven issues of, of thor um but you had a bunch of like huge donny kate's fan who were just already pissed off that he wasn't on the book um for re- whatever reason uh and then they like oh it's a woman writing and uh you have runa kissing someone and i had people sending me emails being like we don't want vulva rubbing in our comics which i found delightful because we kind of <coughs> reached a point now together because it used to be like straight men would be like oh women kissing is most it's the hardest thing ever but i think over the years like over the past decade the kind of it it has occurred to them that they might actually not be interested in welcoming in a guy so now we're back to it being icky. I don't know. But it's fun.
0: <laughs> you had a, a gorgeous scene with her on a, uh, with Runa on a date in a diner where they're asking each other, like, get to know you questions. The softer side of this character is, uh, is just lovely. What are your thoughts on Danielle Moonstar, who is, of course, an X-Men favorite character from the New Mutants, uh, being a Valkyrie? And I know you got to write her briefly in one of your Valkyries series. What are your thoughts on this character?
2: Well, Danny is probably one of my favorite X Men. Um, I'll try not to. I, I might have something coming up with her in the future, and that I'm super excited about because she is one of those. Um, she's got the most interesting set of um, of powers, but she's also such a. Um, I, I don't know. I, I like her. Um, her combination of heart, but still power, um, and I like that she knows kind of when to hit and when to not. I don't know. It, it, I I love her, and I, I I find the more I explore her as a character, the more I love her. Um, I don't know if that's an answer, but it's just uh, she was when we did the King of Black, the the Valkyrie's King King Black thing writing her was kind of the highlight of it. Um, and and we knew, like, we, knew we, we wouldn't be able to have a lot of pages for any of them, really, in that mini. But just the few pages I got with her was just like, that was my favorite ones.
0: She's a great character. And I know a lot of X-Men fans have just been clamoring her for her to get some attention in the book. She's been so peripheral for so long. I think it's been... Well over 10 years since she's had like a featured role in a book on a consistent basis uh, maybe not since the new mutants which has been a while uh but there may be something i'm missing in my brain uh but it's been it's been a little while uh philip let's switch to you for just a minute uh same question tell me a little bit uh, uh about your journey from fan into professional and then i'm going to swoon over your art for a minute <laughs>
1: Sure. Yeah. No, I, uh, X Men's kind of been one of my first loves for literally as long as I can remember. My first memory involves a Iron Man and a Magneto Secret Wars action figures from the 1980s, and I was two years old. So I was pretty much marked from birth to be like a comic book fan. Um, and then between like Pride of the X Men in '89 and the X Men animated series in '92. And then in 93 is when I stumbled into a comic store as a kid, and I was just like, X-Men comics, yes. And literally that night, I was like, I'm going to draw this someday. Um, And, you know, like 30 years later, I finally did. But, uh, you know, it, it took a while. But between things like Wizard Magazine and whatnot, back in the day, I learned, like, oh, you have to draw samples, and you have to take them to conventions. and The biggest convention of the day was San Diego Comic-Con, and I grew up in California. So I started lugging around samples there and just kind of time went on. There was a couple of years I stepped out of comics because I got scared. I started to hit my 20s and was like, oh, no, you know, what if I can't do this? Or like, I need to get a respectable job. So I got a finance degree and I worked for Goldman Sachs and uh, I just hated life so much. Uh, And I I started. That's a a terrible job. Oh, my God. (laughs) so bad. It was the worst, worst fucking job I've ever had. Uh, and I made the world a worse place every day. It just started to weigh on my conscience after a while. Um, but yeah, it was like, I, I, I started doing web comics just cause I wanted an, uh, an avenue to creatively get something out there. And that kind of led me back into, you know, uh, making samples and going to cons. And I eventually went to the Savannah college of art and design where I got my MFA in sequential art. And, uh, and then, yeah, just started chipping away, trying to break in. And it, I've been in comics for about eight or nine years now. I started out through the Top Cow Talent Hunt and uh, worked at Top Cow for a while and then over to Dark Horse for quite a few years. And I'd spend a year or two doing freelance stuff and then a year or two doing creator-owned work and just kind of bouncing back and forth. And then, um, you know, Ricky Purden's the talent manager over at Marvel, and I've known Ricky for... Years and years and years. He's the sweetest guy and is so helpful and has been trying to help me kind of get to where I need to be and get my stuff in front of editors. And we met and chatted for quite a while at San Diego this past year. Um, And he was like, yeah, you know, I think your your uh, storytelling approach works really well for these uh, uh, Infinity comics that we do on the Marvel Unlimited app like X-Men Unlimited and variety of other titles. He's like, I'm going to make sure that the editors of those titles see your stuff. uh, And then within a month or two, I had a uh, Lauren Amaro from the X-Men office reach out and ask me to draw two issues of X-Men Unlimited and that was with Thorin and we uh, got to do a hope and Danny Moonstar and Gene Gray and Exodus and Cable. and it was just like the greatest hits of the best X-Men ever. and I just had an absolute delight. it was the one of the funnest things I've ever done, loved every second of those two issues.
2: And you absolutely killed it. <laughs> we, had, we had this conversation trying to find like the right artist for it uh, and it is a challenge to get infinite Comics to to kind of work properly and I, I, like we, a bunch of them are really great but you can kind of see the people who struggle with the format mm-hmm. uh, and we, I wrote the script and I did the thing that I always do which is just to make the story way too big um, and then you kind of have to like you have to kill a bunch of stuff to to be able to tell like the core of the story, I suppose. Um, but anyway, we brought the thing sent it over to Philip, and then we got the layouts, and just the layout, just scrolling the layouts was just a delight. And we were kind of like, oh, this it's gonna work, it's gonna be, it's gonna be <laughs> fine. This Philip is fantastic.
0: It's a, thank you. I'm gonna come back to spooning on your art in a moment, Philip. Sure. Uh, focusing on this story for just a second, it's largely a story about fear. Uh, Danny Moonstar's power, at least initially, was to manifest fear, and it takes all kinds of wild turns. She gets a psionic bow and arrow for a while. There's a lot of crazy stuff that happens. But uh, her, her arc with the demon bear back at the beginning, which is, is of course, uh, her her most uh, fondly remembered, it's the thing she's most afraid of, hunting her, and the way that manifests. And you guys put together a story where Hope is learning to understand the fear of others and how she takes that on. Uh, I guess this is a question for Thorne first, but how did you come up with this particular story? It's really beautifully done.
2: Well, thank you. I, I, we, we were trying to, well, I was trying to, I wanted to use Danny, and I found it really interesting, this idea of her uh, using her powers to help people get through Um Traumatic things. Uh, we've seen that happen before. Uh, and what I wanted to do was to have a situation where, like, we had a telepath who had k- kind of caught the fear of someone else. Uh, and that was partly because we were in a situation where the X-Men, they, they don't really feel fear in the same way anymore because uh, at this point they can't die. Um, and re- kind of remembering how it is to be terrified, um, and seeing the um, the damage they do uh, from kind of the 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 side of the like the people around the people who approach them like it, it. There was something there that I found really interesting, and then we kind of had to figure figure out a way to to get this into a story uh, that was less than like 900 pages which was what I wanted to write um so I wrote the first this the kind of first part of it we got Philip going and then I realized like we have a lot of story here and then Philip went hey I really like cable he's my guy <laughs> could you please is there any chance of getting cable in there and then everything kind of fell into like fell into place. Like I knew what I wanted to do and I knew how I wanted to to handle it. Uh, so that was mostly you, Philip. Thank you for that.
1: <laughs> no, thank you for being willing to like collaborate on that. I was like, this is my first Marvel gig ever. I'm just gonna literally email this writer that I've never met and be like, hey, could you add these stuff to this story? Because I want to draw Cable, uh, and you were fantastic. We we're like, yes, uh, totally. And the 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 adding Cable into the story just was perfect, and it was a great emotional beat, and just made me so excited.
2: Well, and you can just hear Lauren be like, uh, because I uh, he emailed her like, hey, do you know that draft I sent you? Just never mind that. I want to see if I can get Cable in here. It's just like, oh, okay. <laughs> that sounds that sounds like exactly how we should spend our time. I'm like, yeah, we're, but I'm very happy with
0: it. Cable is so integrally connected to this weird cast of characters in a strange way. As Jean Grey's clone's son, but also as Danny Moonstar's teacher at certain points, and also as Hope's time traveling daddy <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of great components that tie these characters together uh philip what was yeah. I- oh i'm sorry go ahead
2: no no. i was just gonna say that that was kind of part of the problem because the second you start kind of delving into it you realize like how much fun we could have with this specific setup uh and that's where the 900 pages c- came into play but we got <laughs> 12 so i mean there is there is a bigger story to be told there at some point.
0: Let's do it. Uh, Philip, what was it like to draw this story? And can we expect more Marvel work from you in the future?
1: Um, Yeah. So by the time this episode drops, the first uh, issue or two of my next Marvel Unlimited arc will be out. I'm working with writer Zach Thompson. And we're telling a marrow in madripoor story oh
0: my god yay
1: um, yeah it's it's super super fun ferals in there um more than you know arty and leech and stuff like that so the first couple issues will be out uh, i think by the time this drops so um yeah no getting a chance to go back to this first two it was so much fun to draw um it was super intimidating coming in drawing some just, I mean, yeah. With right off the bat, Lauren was like, "Yeah, it'll be Hope and Danny Moonstar, and the Reavers are going to be the bad guys, and Jean's an issue too." And I'm like, "Oh man, you know, you you brought up Russell Dodderman, You were coming off his uh, his designs for the Hellfire Gala and the new Jean costume, and just everything is iconic, character wise, art wise." Uh, and I was just like, "All right, let's do this." This, uh, and it was just it was a lot of fun, and I uh, I put my all into it and just focused on working on those two issues and not worrying about anything else that comes next. And, uh, it was a really, really fun and rewarding experience. Um, you know, Toren brought up what we met at New York comic-con and with the way deadlines and schedules lined up, I was having to like draw the last couple pages at New York comic-con, which like worked out in my favor. Cause Lauren, our editor came over to meet me cause I'd never met Lauren before. And I was literally drawing the pages. For the book that were due like in two days, so I could be like, "Look, I'm drawing them right now," and I, I think that you know that didn't look bad up for me. So,
0: <laughs> now, Philip, I know you have done uh, a number of like here's how to draw tutorials online. You have a great voice for this, plus you're a crazy talented penciler. Uh, but your ability to draw the human form, your facial expressions, and the way your characters relate to each other. I think is my favorite part about your uh your art. Uh whenever I'm preparing for an interview, I get to look at someone's work consecutively. So I did that with Thorin's writing at Marvel. I did that with a lot of your work. And you start to see trends and styles and the way people put things together. How would you describe your approach to these human relationships and uh and facial uh, facial expressions is a big part of your work for me, but the way your characters relate to each other in body language, I, I think it's just really beautifully done.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Character acting is one of those things that I'm always looking for the opportunity to push and try harder and to get more emotion and expression. And I've experimented over the years with ways in which I approach that, how much I reference versus how much kind of from inside me internally. And it's really just an opportunity of like, what can I do to kind of bring some humanity and emotion to things? Because that's really uh, what connects with me as a reader and as an artist and you know, I love big epic things, but I don't know if I'm the best at drawing big epic things yet. I'm working on it all the time, but at the same, like I feel like quiet moments are what I, I really, really love and gravitate toward. Um, and those moments, I feel like I'm maybe a little bit stronger at than something. It, it, not all of us can be Pepe Larraz, so <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. The the standard comic book script where it's like, here's twelve panels of these characters kissing and drinking coffee. Now we need a motorcycle in space. You know? <laughs> <laughs> sounds amazing i'll do all of that <laughs> uh john would you like to ask our guests uh, any questions
3: well as far as as for philip i um i don't have any x-men related questions or marvel related questions but i am curious if we're gonna see another volume of triage because <laughs> i gotta tell you i really liked that book a book that i read and thought that was good and put it down and found myself going back to it the next day, because I realized I actually had unanswered questions. I needed to dive back into it to, to read it again.
1: Oh, thank you. That is one of my, my prized uh, you know like things that I'm most proud of. I worked so hard on that miniseries. Uh, when I pitched it to my editor at Dark Horse, I pitched it as a trilogy of stories, um, with the first one wrapping up enough uh, of the narrative threads that would hopefully be satisfying if we never got a chance to go back to it. At this point, um, I don't think that, uh, you know, sales have justified uh, enough to for a volume two at this moment, but that doesn't mean at some point in the future, if I have the time and ability, I wouldn't kind of pick it up and do it myself and then find a platform to release it via crowdfunding or a different publisher or just bringing the whole thing complete to Dark Horse and being like, let's do volume two. So, it would be amazing to do at some point, but right now volume one is for sure and not for sure, but volume one is about the best we'll do for the next for the foreseeable future. So
3: And just out of curiosity, you wrote and did the art for and colored and I think stapled those issues together and put the <laughs> plates on the press, but you didn't letter it. Is there like a third grade teacher somewhere that told you your penmanship was horrible? It's just so it was just so interesting that lettering was
1: the one thing that you're like, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> You know it's funny uh triage was kind of my love letter to 90s x-men comics because like the some of the first issues i bought were the uh executioner song crossover which is one of the most insane things ever and i love it so much um but because it's so big and out there i I felt a little intimidated by the um, like the style of lettering um so i brought in frank vetkovic and frank's incredible and they lettered the house the graphic novel i did with drew zucker I uh, since then Kepler the book I did with David Duchovny that came out with Dark Horse I actually yeah, yeah. yeah I did the I I did the script adapted from David's pilot, TV pilot I did the pencils inks colors and letters so I did the full thing on that one because I wanted to you know do a full graphic novel where I lettered it as well so you know if, if there's something I can do I want to try it and see if I can figure it out so.
0: Whenever I'm uh whenever I'm prepping for <laughs> interviews, I'll always do like a YouTube search of the person so I can hear their voice and know what their energy's like. And when I typed in your name in YouTube, the first thing that came up was David Duchovny. And I was like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was crazy. Uh, Thorin, you have written more X-Men stuff than people may realize, but it's not directly in the X-Men. Uh, I consider Kraven the Hunter an X-Men villain, at least partially. You've written Kraven. Uh, you wrote The Starjammers in your Captain Marvel annual, which was so fun. You've written The Hand in Punisher. Ah, uh, you've written the Dream Queen uh, in uh, in your recent Valkyrie series, and uh, in in your X Men Unlimited, we got some Reavers in there as well. So even though uh, even though you've been all over the Marvel universe, uh, you've got more X Men stuff than people may realize at first.
2: See, I I, I, I don't necessarily think of it like that, but you, you're obviously obviously right. Um, I I find my introduction to the Marvel universe was. At best, kind of, uh, like whatever I could find in the used bookstore when I was a kid, because we didn't get like, uh, Marvel comics in the store, uh, in my town. And I was broke all the time anyway, so I wouldn't be able to buy it. But I did have a very nice used bookstore, um, that there, there was a guy there who had lost all will to live. Which was excellent because I could go in there and get like a stack of books and and, and I would be like, Hey, how, how much are these books? And he would be like, A hundred kroner, and I would say, I have five. And he's like, oh whatever the fuck, just fuck off. Just stop talking to me. Just and I would I would but I would just grab anything that I found interesting. Um and I usually just went with whatever art I could find. Uh, that I, So I, I I always went home with a bunch of 2000 ADs um, and from time to time some Marvel comics. So I would just, I would read the same issues again and again and again, uh, but I never had like the, oh, these are the X-Men characters and these are the whatever characters. There were just Marvel characters. Um, and... I, I've never, like, until way into the 2000s, I never read like an actual full story arc of anything. It was just like, oh, I had one issue or whatever, um, which was obviously great. But when I, it was a huge change to me when I could afford buying trades, because that's one thing we can actually uh, get in Norway. The single issues, you you can't, still, you can't really get them.
0: Uh, I was just on John's podcast. We were talking about the Star Jammers and and some of their history. John, you were uh, telling me you were planning on a Hepzibah cosplay coming up?
3: (laughs) Oh, Oh, no, no. I don't think anyone needs to see that. I'm much more of a, nope, almost said I'm much more of a chode cosplay. I don't want to say that on mic.
2: Do you want to see all of that, please? Let's, yes, please.
0: A little uh Hepsiba is the space barbarella. We uh we we love her for it. Uh wonderful things. Uh one last question and then we're gonna move to our issue review. Uh and this one's for Thorin. Why is Mr. Horse the cutest thing in comics? Oh my god,
3: right?
2: Oh my god, it's because it's because Al Ewing, God bless him, the fucker, decided to make him Yorkshire, like a Yorkshire man. Uh and the thing is, um, like can you speak Yorkshire? No, of course, you no one can. Even the fucking Yorkshire people can speak Yorkshire. So we, so we obviously, like, we, he's fantastic because, like, he, he is a union guy. Uh, he, he's, he's got no deference for anyone, least of all the fucking Asgardians. Like, he is a brilliant character. The problem is when you write him, you have to uh you write the thing you want to say then you figure out how to say it in yorkshire then you get like i check with yorkshire people be like hey does this sound correct and then i'll send it over to the americans will be like no this is like no one understands what this like so you have to kind of get it down to a level level where it's understandable for people outside of yorkshire and then we have a comic like it is it is a ridiculous process but we do love him is the best uh,
0: character I have not had the pleasure of meeting Al Ewing, but of course he is just brilliant. And Mr. Horse is great. Mr. Ed could never. This <laughs> could so, never. Yeah. Uh and Philip I uh, I am so thrilled to hear about you doing uh, Marrow coming up. Let me just ask you quickly what it's been like to uh to delve into Marrow, who of
1: course is one of uh X-Men continuity's all-time favorites. <laughs> um Marrow's been really fun. Uh I think if you've read any of Zach Thompson's stuff or followed him on Twitter, Zach loves body horror uh, and Cronenberg and things of that nature. So having Marrow be the spotlight character of the arc that he wrote was really perfect. And a lot of the other characters we bring in, it's all just lots of great, like gross X-Men body horror. uh, And it's been, it's been real fun.
0: It is so fun hearing your stories and hearing you guys uh, share with us. Thank you. Thank you for being here and, uh, and, and sharing these uh, memories and insights. Uh, we're going to delve into our issue review next. And on my podcast, we've been kind of slowly working our way through the 1960s, which is crazy stories. It's all the Silver Age stuff. We've gone to uh, the negative zone. We've gone to subterranea. Uh, we've slowly, through the flashback stuff, started introducing headier concepts that get more and more complicated as the X-Men go on. We've uh, we've touched on Mr. Sinister In our issue about Uncanny X-Men minus one, we got into crazy time travel stuff. Today's issue goes into some new places that we haven't really touched on the podcast. So I'm gonna do a touch of setup because we have some readers who are starting at the beginning with us and do not know all of the crazy stuff that happens in the X-Men line afterward. Uh, Today's issue is Generation X minus one. It's from July, 1997. It's called The Beginning of a Beautiful Friendship. It is by Scott Lobdell, with gorgeous pencils by Chris Bachelot, uh, inks by Al-Vay. Marie Javins is on letters, or excuse me, on colors. Comicraft is on letters, and Bob Harris is the editor. Okay, so in this episode, we're going to meet Emma Frost, who is a long-term X-Men favorite. She's kind of the counter to Jean Grey. She is a blonde telepathic woman who was a former member of the Hellfire Club and then became the leader of Generation X alongside Banshee, who we of course, have spent a lot of time on our show with recently. Uh, The two of them kind of got paired together. And this flashback issue takes us to uh, a time that they met before the X-Men ever formed, but they don't remember it later. We'll get into that a little bit today. Emma Frost was a child of privilege. She has two sisters and a brother and a very corrupt father. And at a certain point, she's a mutant living on the streets, which is where this issue picks up. So this is in her youth. It kind of talks about her early introduction to the Hellfire Club. Now, the Hellfire Club is a completely different thing. This is a Chris Claremont uh, uh, creation. It's a rich societal gathering of some of the world's richest influencers, basically. It's part sexy dominatrix basement club, but also part misogynistic secret society and also kind of part Illuminati. They have big parties at a mansion in New York where the men dress like they're from the 1800s and the women all dressed in like corsets and lace and, and lingerie. And uh, there, uh there's just these giant debaucherous, dirty dealing events that take place kind of across the Claremont run. Membership in the Help, Help Our Club is very secret and elite. Uh, membership in this club is kind of passed on from wealthy father to wealthy son. Uh, there's all these secret deals with kind of the rich and powerful. Uh, and there is an inner circle that controls all of this. They call themselves the inner circle and they name themselves after chess pieces. So there's usually a black king, black queen, black bishop, and the same versions with the white at the front. And some of the uh, most famous characters in the X-Men franchise, like Celine, was the black queen. Magneto has been the white king. Sebastian Shaw has been the black king. So there's characters that get woven in that uh, that have really big parts and, and uh the hellfire is one-third of the ruling council on krakoa it's the uh the, the membership in the quiet council which features uh emma frost sebastian shaw and kate pride who we have talked about on our show a little bit uh before i continue uh any thoughts on the hellfire club from our panel here do you guys uh, like these characters
3: i mean i like them they showed up first in in the dark phoenix saga and of course that's classic so great introduction
1: yeah yeah, I don't know if I have too many thoughts besides, like, yeah, the great, like, aristocrat bondage people. So, like, <laughs> they look great, they're fun to draw, they're kind of insane. I mean, the best thing that came out of the Hellfire Club, obviously, is Emma Frost, who we all love. And I will have, I have lots of things to say about her in this issue. But, uh, yeah. No. <laughs> Thorne, any thoughts on the on the Hellfire Club?
2: No, no, I, I'll second Philip. We do enjoy the bondage, dominatrix... The, 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 that's what we want more of in comics. I think. I think that is especially in the nineties. Um, we we kind of lost uh, we lost our inhibitions a little bit, and you have some great runs there. And I, I enjoyed. The
1: yeah, idea. Mean, <laughs> you know, oh, I'm sorry, Phil. Go ahead. No, going back to something uh, you said earlier, where uh, in America, we've decided we don't want to be horny anymore, like the Claremont X-Men stuff. There's just this great undercurrent of horniness that runs through the whole thing that is kind of personified in the Hellfire Club. But like, it's just it's great. (laughs) I think everyone is still horny. We just don't talk about it as much. (laughs) Let's let's talk about it a lot.
2: Yeah, I I do sincerely think like I I remember uh, getting again, I don't know from which run it was because this was in the 90s and i got got random issues or whatever but i do like the the horniness it it was such a like you just kind of wanted to read that when you were a kid and i find trying to protect teens from horniness that's i mean that's a losing battle uh and i don't see why we're trying but i mean
0: i mean On the Hellfire Club itself, the idea of these like powerful, rich billionaires showing up so that they can get an apple in their mouth and whipped by a woman in a bustier, but she's also stealing their thoughts and secrets. (laughs) The whole concept is just brilliant. It's great. The other concept we have to introduce is the Age of Apocalypse, which uh, which shows up in this episode. We're going to spend more time on this next episode, but I'll get into that in the, uh, the announcements at the end. So Professor X has a son, David Haller. Uh, His name is Legion. There was a whole TV show about him. If you haven't seen it, it's pretty great. He has a mind that generates multiple personalities, and each personality has a different mutant power. And there are times when these personalities will take over him or even escape from him, and all his stories are nuts. He's being featured in the Legion of X series by Cy Spurrier right now. He's got all this locked up in his mind. He's had to stay in comas a lot of his life because people are scared of what he's capable of. One time, he was desperate to get his dad's approval. He got the idea that he could travel back in time and kill Magneto before the X-Men were formed so he could give his dad everything he ever wanted. But he screwed up and accidentally killed his dad instead. And so in the late 90s, and I was a reader at the time, they canceled all of the X-Men books and replaced them with new books based in this other reality where everything was different, the characters were different. And at the time, it felt like a permanent shift. It felt like my favorite thing had been canceled and then replaced by something else. And I was so hurt and so mad, but then the books started coming out and they were good. And then a few months later, they canceled them and brought the regular reality back. And I kind of wanted the Age of Apocalypse to stay because it was so amazing. This is a wild world where Magneto rules the X-Men and there are dark and twisted versions and or heroic versions of many characters because the earth is kind of a wasteland with apocalypse ruling. Four characters from that reality come back to our reality when the Age of Apocalypse ends. One of them is a character named X-Man, who is a genetically created son uh, of Cyclops and Jean Grey made by that reality's Mr. Sinister. He's extraordinarily powerful. One of them is a character named Holocaust or Nemesis, who is a super powerful son of Apocalypse. One is a creepy monster guy who is called the Sugar Man. And the fourth is a dark version of our character, the Beast. Uh, This version's Henry McCoy is a dark, terrible, mad scientist, Dr. Moreau, who likes to melt people down into genetic material and create weird, creepy soldiers out of them. He's a very, very corrupt version. And the idea for many years is he's playing off of our beast, who's supposed to be the heroic guy. But really, over the last 30 years, what we've seen is our beast has become more and more like this beast. There was a recent issue where Mr. Sinister on Krakoa has the dark beast's head in his lab and the dark beast is like hey let me out and mr sinister's like no we've already got a beast that's way worse than you living here like we don't need you anymore (laughs) Which is great the the dark beast from earth 295 the age of apocalypse shows up in this issue as well because when he landed in our reality it happened before the x-men were ever formed so there's a big continuity dump uh what are your thoughts on the age of apocalypse if our panel would like to comment
1: Oh, my gosh, it is one of my all time favorite X-Men crossovers like you. I was reading comics at the time and it was just just a blast of creativity and ideas. And from a production standpoint, now that I'm older and working in comics, I just can't imagine the scramble it was to invent all these new concepts, to have all the artists design all these new, you know, new versions of the characters to propose all these stories like it was the 90s, so it's not like they were planning this years in advance. I think I've read somewhere it was like, you know, six months before launch, they decided to do it. Um, yeah, it's absolutely incredible. It's it's wild. The color is so colorful and so much fun. I've got the omnibus behind me on the shelf somewhere. So, yeah, it was it was just a lightning bolt of creativity. And since we're talking a little bit about Generation X, the Generation Next miniseries, which was Scott Lobdell and Chris Pachalo, is the best out of all of them. It's absolutely incredible and heartbreaking and just gut-wrenchingly amazing.
0: It's a crazy world. Rogue is married to Magneto. Sabretooth is on the team. Cyclops is evil. It's, there's a lot of crazy stuff. Uh, to, uh, Thorne, did you read any of The Age of Apocalypse? Or are you familiar
2: with it? Well, I've I read it, but I didn't read it at the time. Um, but when I read it, I... Ha- I have this feeling of like, oh, these people are having just the best fucking time making comics. You can kind of tell that this is like everyone is just having a brilliant time and you can tell on the page. uh, And like it's one of those those books that I will go back to because it makes me want to write um, it It is one of those they, There's so many pieces in there Where I think like oh this is kind of Why I fell in love with comics in the first place I, I think it's pretty It would have blown my mind to read it at the time um, But again n- Norway
0: I remember when the when the books were coming out on a on New Comic Book Day, I'd be like, "Mom, you have to drive me to the shop right now. They're going to sell out of it. I need to get this today. It has to happen." Because it was really intense. If you couldn't find it, you might have to wait months. It was a, it was it was a really exciting time to be an X Men fan. Uh, John, yeah. do you have any thoughts on the Age of Apocalypse?
3: I mean, I I read it when it was coming out, but I wasn't really. Into the X-Men side of the Marvel Universe. I was reading the non X-Men issues. So it didn't hit me. I hadn't I was reading the event, but I hadn't read what led up to the event. So really what I remember about it was how striking I found so much of the art because I hadn't been following these artists in the original titles. And so someone like like Joe Mad, his art on the didn't he do Amazing X Men? Yes. Uh huh.
0: I I well, I'm pretty it, sure. it, it was sick. astonishing X ex- Men
3: yeah in any case i i was like wow this is not something i've seen before because i hadn't been reading the x-men books so uh and also i remember that uh the cyclops design and that hair uh no no i can't
0: short hair cyclops had long uh. hair <laughs> <laughs> and i'm always a sucker for yeah we'll i'm really always a sucker for a,
3: a, a non-evil magneto i like uh, i like you know i like a shades of gray magneto and so i loved that about of apocalypse
1: fantastic. I, I, I interrupted you before, Philip. Did you have something you wanted to add? Oh, I mean, that came out in 1995. So it was right kind of at the beginning of the uh, direct market crash in, in uh, at least North America. So all the comic short stores around me had shut down. So I was scrambling to like department stores and drug stores and grocery stores to find the issues. So I only got like maybe a quarter of the issues. And then because of Wizard, I knew what happened. And it wasn't until about 10 years ago I was at C2E2 and I just like quarter bin dove one whole day, finding every single issue I was missing. And I read it as an adult all the way through. And yeah, like there's there's elements that were like everyone's trying to ape Claremont's purple prose style of writing. But yeah, I agree with Thorin. It's like it is just they're having so much fun and it's so exciting and inspiring and still still reads pretty damn well for an event that at this point is what, 25 years old or
0: something? <laughs> uh, nowadays, you can get whatever you want on Amazon. But back then, whenever we visited a foreign city or I was somewhere else, one of the first places I ever wanted to go was a comic book shop. So I could scan through all their stuff to find the missing holes in my collection. I remember looking for x Four Sixteen, 16, which was the end of the Executioner's song, the final issue with like Strife. I probably checked like 25 comic shops for that book before I finally found it. And it was like $4. And I was like, whoa! Like, But nowadays, you just get whatever you want online. Uh, but yeah, this was a great time to be a comics reader. Okay, so I set up Emma Frost. I set up the Hellfire Club. I set up the Age of Apocalypse. The last thing, and this is brief, is Generation X. Uh, the uh, the X-Men were a school. And many years later, they launched the New Mutants, which was a school. And many years after that, we had the 90s version, which is Generation X. Uh, after that, we got the Academy X stuff. And that's a kind of another generation post- uh, this is a, a series that is very wonderfully remembered by many who read it. It features Jubilee and an entire new cast of characters, many of whom are really big names in the comics now. Uh, M or Monet is enormous. Uh, Husk is very fondly remembered. Sync is one of the mainstays on the X-Men now. Uh, but they, uh, you get the art of Chris Bachelot, which at the time was a very different style, something you hadn't seen. We recently reviewed, uh, a book by Adam Polina on this show, and we talked about just what a jarring difference that is out of standard pencils, but it's beautiful. Uh, Philip, maybe this is a question for you. How would you describe Chris Bachelot's pencils?
1: Um, yeah, especially in this era, he's coming at it with more of our cartoony influence. It's like Art Adams via Vertigo because um, sure. started with like death, high cost of living miniseries. Um, and then looking at the stuff here, I can see kind of how Art Adams started to influence before. This is this is probably what a year or two before he jumps over to the main X-Men title when Joe Kelly and Steve Yeah. Yeah. Like, and like, I think that's where I first really got into his art. Uh, but I went back about 10 years ago, same same con, bought the first 15 issues of Gen X and read it. Like, I love his work so much. In addition to like the energy and style, there's a really incredible sense of design uh, and unique storytelling to his approach uh, from page layouts to camera angles to... He was doing stuff that was very different for the time and still to this day stands out. I actually have a couple pages of his original art in my... A uh, file from uh, a series he did called The Witching Hour, which is one of my favorite comics of all time. But I love his work and I've got a chance to meet him in person like and have dinner with him. And he is an extremely nice guy. So it's good to report.
0: I hope to meet him one day. I think he's a phenomenal talent. Mm-hmm. Now, delving into this book, the cover of this book. And if you read there's a there's some circles behind the beast and literally the words written this cover was inspired by the cover from issue number 29 of the X-Men by Kirby Roth and Tartaglione. And we have covered that book on this podcast. This is the uh, the story. I, I can't say infamous because nobody even remembers the Mimic exists. But this is the cover where Mimic and the super-adaptor are fighting, Professor X's head is floating, and then like the, the X-Men are peeking from the side. Here we have the Generation X kids peeking from the side. Uh, uh, instead of Mimic and super adaptive, we have the dark beast and Banshee battling and it's Emma's head that
1: is floating. Uh,
0: what are your thoughts on this cover?
1: I mean, I'm glad it's an homage cover because they kind of excused, like the really ugly design of it. <laughs> <laughs> like, but- my favorite cover. <laughs> yeah like it's it, it's it's got its own unique charm and again like uh, it has a very specific approach it's taking and you know it does that but if if someone came to me with just this as their initial concept i'd be like uh what the, what's the reason for this and yeah the homaging kind of that approach and cover i'm like okay that makes sense uh thorne did you have any thoughts
0: on the cover or the art style
2: well i would like to have been in like the the meeting where they decided to do that one. Uh, that would be interesting to just hear the, the reasoning and the, yeah, 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 let's do it, yeah. The, the moment where they decided this was the way to go. Um, but I, I'm not sure. Like, I, I, I always have a hard time uh, thinking about the old covers. And, and the thing is, it doesn't feel that old. Like, I feel like the nineteenths were yesterday. I don't know what happened. Quarter century, uh, <laughs> it's like we we're kind of dating ourselves here, but it's just like that was that was just like a, a little while ago. Um, but but I I'm not sure. Like I've never been in a position where I would have seen that cover in the store and be like, hey, I would like to buy it. But looking at it now, I'm like I'm, I don't think it kind of it, it does what it's supposed to do, which yeah. is sell the book. But I don't. It's not my favorite cover. In this era of
0: comics, the way to tell the dark beast from the regular beast is this beast had darker fur, pointier ears, longer hair, and metal pants. And you get that design here, so that's kind of what you're looking at. Now, I will uh, I will open the book for us. In pages one through three of this book, we are in the present, just like the other flashback books. We're starting from where the last issue of whatever series left off. Skin, who is a character with lots of skin. His name is Angelo uh, Espinosa. He's got a blade to his throat but then stan lee shows up in a goth like chamber costume he's got a toupee and sunglasses and a face scarf and uh, he's in a grungy basement with like a guitar and a dirty couch and he pulls his wig off because it's very 90s and uh, he turns on his tv and is watching Baywatch. But but instead decides to talk about the members of generation x there's one point where he's talking about all the members briefly and he goes Here's jubilation lee she's not my daughter despite the rumors which is kind of funny because it's stanley and jubilation lee Uh, and then we finally get to go into our flashback which is what we are here for emma frost is a young very skinny petite uh 16 year old who's been kind of sleeping on park benches and as we open this issue uh we see that she's wearing a stolen bob mackie dress now uh, Bob Mackie is, of course, is a super famous queer Hollywood fashion designer. He's 83 years old, still alive, a uh, an icon in the industry. And, and Emma has forged an invitation in order to attend the annual gala of the super rich Samuel Cumberland, who I don't know who this character is. He's never mentioned again. Uh, she's been living on the streets for a year, her parents have disinherited her, uh, we'll talk about her family background more another time. Uh, she's a telepath now, and she's at this party, wandering the floor, scanning the thoughts of the rich and famous. And she's hearing about potential investments in Wakandan Airways, and Stark Industries, and unstable molecules. Uh, she also hears uh, someone over overhearing, or excuse me, someone thinking about the uh, Shield, SHIELD helicarrier they're designing and men are lusting after her as she walks by. One man named Ben Nishimura introduces himself, and then she walks over and meets uh, Harry Leland. Uh, Thorne, will you take us through what happens uh, in this next part of the book?
2: Sorry. Um, Well, uh, after walking through the party, uh, she's feeling tired, uh, so she heads to the bathroom to kind of just just have a break and she meets harry uh on the way there uh he kindly offers to to drive her home uh, and she remembers that he was the one who thought about murdering someone uh earlier and she kind of uh she she thinks like oh well that's disconcerting but possibly useful or something, uh, which I always, like, I, it's so Emma, I enjoy that, even at 16, she's plotting away, yes, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh when she gets to the bathroom, she faints because she's so tired and she doesn't know how long she's been out, but by the time she wakes up. Uh and leaving the bathroom, um, Leland is gone. So, and she's not quite sure if that's a good thing or not, I suppose. Like she kind of figures she'll deal with Leland at a different time. Um So she decides to walk home uh, and she walks down to the street and she runs into a bunch of bodyguards. Um, they are harassing her, I suppose. And instead of doing what we're supposed to do, I suppose we women, uh, and just ignore and be polite. She is not polite. She's a smart ass and she kind of knows she started something. Um. Uh, and she, she kind of she thinks oh fuck I not oh fuck because this is Marvel, but uh <laughs> she knows it's something. Um and while this is happening, Sean Cassidy um is surveilling the party with his partner, who I forget the name of L- Lovell L- Lovell. Um uh, and he can see this young girl Low- Lowell, Lowell Fontaine is his name. There we are. I mean that that was that was a great pronunciation. <laughs> um yeah so Cassidy is is watching this girl being harassed on the street and he wants to do something with it but um Lowell is is kind of he's saying no you shouldn't blow your cover um then one of the guys uh is like oh you can't go without a kiss to Emma uh and she agrees uh and he's getting ready for his kiss and then Emma Not only punches him, but just scratches his face up and there is blood uh, and it's uh, it's a whole thing. And then Cassidy runs after them um, uh, because he decides to step in. And I would like to ask, like, this is my main question is, isn't Cassidy supposed to be Irish? Like, what is that accent they're trying to do? What is going on? It is something for sure. Um, But yeah. So that's pages six through ten
0: so sean cassidy is a uh an interpol agent he's the mutant banshee obviously he knows about his powers but this is either a time when he stopped being an interpol agent and started being a cop or maybe he's an undercover cop working for interpol on an assignment but yeah he's a cop in this issue which is kind of ironic because irish people in america uh, being cops has certainly been done before uh, the other character we uh, can briefly introduce here is uh, Harry Leland, who is the Black Bishop of the Hellfire Club in uh, Claremont's run. He is a mutant. He's the father of Shinobi Shaw. He uh, he has uh, the ability to alter the weight of things. Basically, he can make things real heavy or real light. So oversimplifying, but uh, but he's a, a big character in some comics. Uh, any thoughts from the rest of our panel on these first uh, these first ten pages?
1: Um, One of the things that I really like here, um, because if you, you know, you read through X-Men, especially like Grant Morrison's run on the character is just piecing together kind of where Emma came from, who she is. And the one that I really love how Emma is like a self-made woman, a self-made person. Um, If you look at some of the, the stuff in Grant Morrison's run, Emma comes from money, as it's mentioned here, but also as it keys in here, like she leaves that money behind. She leaves her family behind. She doesn't take any of it. Her dad, dad's terrible. And so she basically sets out to make herself into who she wants to be. Um, so here it's like, you know, we're at the party. We're picking up stock tips. We're using our telepathy for the first time. She's been living on the streets and and kind of hinted at here. But other than also apparent in New X-Men is the fact that like um, you know, Emma physically changes through time, both through cosmetic surgery and through a bunch of other things. And she's not, she's very proud of the fact that like, I made myself into the person who I want to be uh, through a, a million different ways than obviously in Grant's run. Emma has the secondary mutation that turns into diamond skin and stuff like that. But it very much sets up this thing very on like the Emma we see here is not the Emma we know, but she is, has that determination to make herself into the person she wants to be she doesn't take anyone's charity she doesn't take anyone's you know nothing emma is is just a badass because emma decided i'm gonna be a badass and i fucking love that about her
2: i mean she will take people's thoughts and, and go okay i i i know how to deal with the stock market now so i will think positive positive. Uh, and make some money, and then I will do something big. We don't know what the big thing is, but something big is coming up.
0: She's uh she's one of many characters because I've been on the on the uh, 60s for so long on my show. She's one of many characters I can't wait to bring in. I got to do an episode focused on Nightcrawler uh just recently and we have so much good to say about that character. Uh this week we get to talk about Emma. Uh so there's a lot of stuff coming up in the future of the X-Men that I adore. This is a character that I love very much. For example, even here, the complexity of the girl of privilege disinherited by her family and having to learn to survive on the streets. This giant man is like, "Hey, little girl, looking for a daddy," and she scratches him across the face, and uh, and like I, I love her boldness mixed with kind of some uh, thinly veiled vulnerability here. I, I think it's a brilliant portrayal, uh, just gorgeous. And her and her little design, her little dress, she's uh, she's gorgeous here.
1: Um, Again, okay. I, no, I love the art through the setup of this issue. Um, like that two page spread at the beginning where she's looking out over the entire party and then you know the bottom of the two pages is just this essentially one shot that she works her way through broken up into different panels and i've heard that described in a couple different ways we employ a lot of similar things with the infinity comics so instead of moving horizontal we break up an image into panels and move vertical like i just like that moving through space and simulating camera pans and very cinematic, and again, I said that Chris McCall just has like an incredible design and storytelling sense to this.
0: The um, color in this book is also really beautifully done. It's uh, it's just lovely. It's perfectly done over his pencils uh, and inks. It's 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 really nice.
1: Yeah, no, it's Marie Javins who's like the editor in chief at DC now. She spent a lot of her early career as a colorist at Marvel, and one thing I've noticed about her, looking at her older work, is it is like heavily heavy yellows and everything. She colored a lot of, like, the the Larry Hama Wolverine stuff with Adam Kubert. And maybe, I don't know if she was coloring back as far as Mark Sylvester. I'd have to double check that. But, yeah, she leans in towards, like, that yellow hues and colors to lots of stuff with works with, you know, Emma's hair and lights of cars and things like that.
0: Uh, Philip, will you take us through the next part of the book?
1: Sure. Um, So, after uh, Sean uh, runs off, we go back to the alleyway. Where Emma is uh knocked unconscious by this group of uh, bodyguards and then someone attacks them. Well, and they're t- planning they're planning to rape her, is what's implied. It's it's yeah, yeah. This is one of my the biggest problems I had with this issue is we're setting up like the action in the story through the threat of both physical and sexual violence towards a minor yeah. and a female presenting character. And I'm like, I like got come on, like, there's gotta be a better way to tell this story. I really hate that trope. Uh, And it feels, and I'm not, I mean, and I think this might've actually been James Robinson writing it. I've read two different attributions as to who wrote this issue. Um, But anyway, regardless of whether it was James or Scott, I was like, there's had to have been a slightly more intelligent or more creative way to create a sense of danger uh, for Emma than just like the generic just i don't know was, yeah yeah they could have done better as my is my uh, my soapbox to stand on for for making this happen to like. it's pretty it's gross Fair,
2: fair. Well, <laughs> I, I, I would say that they do a very intelligent job of um like they it's a very triggering thing when she walks through the party and and everyone observes her very much like just a doll um and it is I would say like the main fear that women have when it comes to uh, just not being a person anymore. So uh, I would say that for what it is, it's creepy as fuck when you read it and, and they do. I'm not sure that was their intention um but that's kind of the result of it but I, I do absolutely agree like it is I, I doubt they set out to be like oh we're gonna make, make some uh some, some horror and see if we can trigger the women I just think they they thought like oh what what's the thing that women fear rape I think I, I that that sounds that sounds correct
1: yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: and Philip, you're, you're correct. Uh, it, it credits uh, Scott Lobdell on the website, but it is Jim Robinson who wrote this book. He's credited on page one, and I completely overlooked that. So I will, uh, I will amend, and thank you for pointing that out.
1: The attribution's weird. Page one says like, Created by Lovedell and Machalo, but then in the dialogue from the Stanley character, it says I, I was very confused. I had to I looked at a couple of different websites too to try and figure it out. So
0: yeah, it's totally Jim Robinson, and he did uh, he did a number of X Men related titles in the '90s. But we'll we'll, we'll talk about him another time. Uh, keep us going with the story. What happened? Sure.
1: Oh uh, yeah, so something attacks the uh, bodyguards in the alley. We cut to Sean and his partner run into the alley and just kind of see the blood on the ground. Something's in trouble. Uh, And then Emma kind of comes to consciousness through this really cool... uh, Chris, especially at the time, would do this thing where he would photocopy art repeatedly to get kind of like a a textured, zip-a-toned look. Um, So that's how he kind of has that, goes from a blur to Emma being in focus uh, panel. And then the next page is this really awesome just downshot of Dark Beast's uh, lab. Turns out Dark Beast is the one who attacked everyone, saved Emma and he's experimenting on the bodyguards. This page is a little bit weird cuz the lettering attribution goes to Emma when it should be Dark Beastline and then one of the guys on the table has blue skin for the top half of his body and the bottom half of his body has like normal human toned feet. <clears throat> So there's there was uh, it's a really great page. There's a lot of drawing on there, but I think because of that amount of detail, there was some some issues in the lettering and coloring that makes it a little harder to read.
0: There's uh, a there's a jar full of eyeballs and like a tray full of bones. Like woof.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's really really crazy. So anyway, Dark Beast essentially has saved Emma, and then they're talking as he's cutting these bodyguards to pieces. His mind is a little scrambled post-Age uh, of Apocalypse. He doesn't quite remember everything. He's got little snippets, and Emma is talking to him. Basically, he's like, I remember experimenting on people, so I'm just going to keep experimenting on people until I can remember like who I am and where I come from. Uh, he throws out a couple different names that are in his head. Um, so he, the, the, the rest of the section that I was kind of just talking through is the conversation between the two of them. There's some really great back and forth, again, like, the art here is, is just incredible. I love it so much. Uh Emma's, uh
0: Emma's fearlessness in this section. To wake up in this room full of corpses and body parts and start having a conversation with the monster that's in front of you is just it's a it's a really unexpected uh and, and it shows her bravery. Like this girl won't back down from anything. Yeah. Uh John, guide us through the end of the book. Tell us how things wrap up.
3: Banshee comes flying in to rescue Emma, hits beast once and is like woo look at me i won <laughs> um but the beast is not down and kind of uh it gives him a, a what looks to be an incredibly uh uh bleeding uh stomach wound knocks him out and is gonna kill him but emma convinces the beast to calm down she uses her telepathy to calm him down before he can before he can kill sean and then Harry Leland and Sean's partner show up, and they want to take Emma and Henry downtown, and she again uses her telepathy on the two of them, convinces them to take Banshee to the hospital to make sure that he gets medical attention. Then they're going to go home, go to bed, and then she makes a deal with the dark beast that the two of them are going to uh, continue to work together or start to work together, I guess beginning of a beautiful friendship
1: Emma
0: starting to learn how to use her powers in different ways and we we've talked a lot about how telepathy works here she scans the thoughts at one point she changes Beast's mind she removes some memories and it leaves her very weak at this point but she again is a, a strong powerhouse at this age she's learning how to hone her talents and how to survive this partnership between Emma Frost and the Dark Beast as far as I know has never been mentioned again in any other comic book. But we get the idea that 16-year-old Emma has made a deal with this crazy devil and also had kind of an early introduction to the Hellfire Club, which is clearly somewhere where she winds up uh, for many years, establishing a base of power for herself. Uh, What are your thoughts on how this story concluded or just any thoughts in general?
1: Yeah, I, I did a little bit of research, too, trying to figure out, like, all right, what was this setting up? Like, where did they interact again? Like, what did Dark Beast have to do with Emma's, like, growing up? And yeah, it's never been picked up anywhere. So I don't know. That could be fun to explore some point. Who knows? Uh, uh, the Dark Beast has a wild history. Oh, man, he small.
0: does. <laughs> yeah, we'll cover him some other time, but it's, it's crazy. He's all over the place.
1: Yeah, I mean, telepathy and mind control in stories is a little bit it's an interesting one. It's complicated. It's problematic. We've, I've talked about this a lot with my friends about D&D, right? If you're playing a wizard, you have spells where you can suggest or charm or things like that. And like where in the realm of consent that falls and where do we feel comfortable playing? And I think sometimes in, in uh, telepaths in comics, and like, I haven't had to really write one, um, but it's like, all right, where, where am I okay with a character doing this Where is essentially removing consent from people by altering their thoughts or making them do certain things? Like if it's a protective thing, okay. Or is it in a situation here? Like it's a, it's a little bit murky and then Emma's a murky character. So it doesn't. It's, I don't think it necessarily betrays her. And she was also in a situation where her life and a lot of things were threatened. So she is uh, adeptly navigating a space to keep herself safe. So I'm sure okay. I don't have an answer for any of those things. Those are just thoughts I had as I was reading this to be like, Ugh, what, is this okay? How do I feel about this? I don't know. Well, Gene
0: Jean, Jean and Charles are also ethically complicated in the way they use their powers, but Gene is actively considered a hero Emma's considered an anti-hero. She is well-loved. Charles is considered a villain by much of fandom. And it's interesting cuz they use their powers in different ways, but the way we uh the way we perceive and and uh celebrate them is very different. And then you've got characters like Mastermind or Mesmero who are clearly supervillains using their powers for awful supervillain things, right? It's uh we get they had a whole trial on my show. So go listen if you'd like to learn more about that. Uh, Thorne, do you have any or Thorn, do you have any uh, thoughts on that?
2: Well, I was going to say that I really enjoy how Leland is bringing his glass of wine into the room, which feels very stupid after after <laughs> Philip's little. Into the uh, into the murder basement. <laughs> but it's just, I, I just enjoy how just, he's, he's coming in there in his suit, but just it's constantly wearing, just just wearing his glass of wine. That that's what I really enjoyed about the, the ending. Oh style. yeah, as he's
0: as he's carrying Banshee's body out, he's still got his wine glass in his
2: hand. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know. but it's just I, I just I I, I love. I love the art of the. Um, I mean, I love the art in this entire story, but I, the the just the madness and all the details in the, those last pages here are just they're just absolutely brilliant. When you start to get into all the shelves and everything, but my favorite is still the the wine glass. I'm sorry, that was not your question. I'm sorry. No,
0: that was great. Do you have any thoughts on the ethics of telepathy, or or have you ever written a character who has uh, mind powers like that?
2: Well, well, I have, but um, but I, just, just kind of skirting by and, and not really getting into the ethics of it. Um, I, I'm trying not to spoil what I'm, what's coming up because I, I I'm I am right now dealing with that specific thing, um, and, and I do find it interesting because it is, it is. Sort of the thing you can do in real life with manipulation and and what we're kind of, we're kind of entering um, a a phase of humanity where we're having discussions of what is abuse Um, and we're gonna, this is, I think the first time we've, you've heard kind of the term gaslighting being discussed openly among people like my my 14 year old kid knows what gaslighting is yeah, i think my 10 yeah. year old knows what it is um and it is really interesting to uh th- when we're kind of now discussing the fact that you you can be if not brainwashed because that's not really a thing then you can be heavily manipulated into thinking things you might not necessarily agree to but like It's an interesting thing and obviously telepathy is just like a a really efficient way of doing the things that you can not technically do if you're just charismatic enough or in a position of power or whatever. So I find it really interesting is what I'm trying to say.
0: It's also really important to have limitations on your characters. Uh, Emma uses her abilities here, but then gets tired afterward. Uh, the future Emma, she can use her telepathy, but not protect herself, or she can shift to diamond form and not use her telepathy. Uh, one of the reasons Professor X has written out of the book so much is he's so powerful. How do we tell stories where he has limitations? Storm runs into the, some of the same problems in books. It's, it's an interesting uh, uh, challenge. I'm sure writing Thor, has its challenges in that way too, finding threats that are big enough, but making him still feel grand and powerful at the same time.
2: Yeah. I I mean, that was kind of, that is like the obvious thing with like, if you, if you want to do big stories where the solution, the ultimate solution is to punch someone, then obviously Thor is going to be a problem, but it is quite easy to uh, think and, and more interesting in many ways to, 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 Go to the places where you're going to get into like either like morally dubious uh, things where you're not exactly sure what's the right thing to do, Um, which is kind of what I'm doing. uh, Like right now, right this moment, I'm writing uh, Boar, like the Thor's grandfather, Thanos, Doctor Doom and Thor into the same scene. Um oh, that's a lot. Of <laughs> that, is a lot of, that is a lot of people who think they have the answer. Uh and it is it, it is a delightful thing because you you have uh a bunch of people who obviously think they know best but no one like there is no right answer. Um and, and you, you can always do it it's just it's just harder.
0: Uh, this has been absolutely brilliant uh, discussing this issue. I will associate this issue with the both of you forever now as well. But I uh, I'm, I am filled with insight and uh, just huge smiles as we uh, kind of conclude our conversation today. Uh, any thoughts, uh, final thoughts from either of you on today's issue review before we uh, wrap up and do our outros?
2: Well, I, I would say that it was a fucking delight. Uh, it immediately convinced me to go back to the nineties and, and and read more nineties X-Men because I haven't done it in, in a few years. And and it's just it's just so much fun.
1: Yeah, I think I'm in a similar spot. It just it takes me back to the kind of excitement and kind of energy of the time and kind of like the chaos of those comics where like they don't all work, but they, they definitely have an energy that, that swing for the fences. And it, it was fun to read. I like, have not actually read this issue before. And also, you know, as, as a writer or, and as an artist to be like, oh, like what threads could we pick up from this one and stick in a new comic and, and, and things like that. So it was real fun.
0: Uh, going back to when I read this book, the idea of an early team up between Emma Frost and Banshee, who are now the head Mister or headmaster and headmistress of, of uh, Generation X, was like, oh, what fun! Uh, Banshee didn't have much to do here. He screamed and got knocked out, but it was uh, this was mostly an Emma story, and it's uh, it's a blast. Uh, thank you both for your time and your talents and your insights today. I had a blast getting to know you and uh, and just uh, hearing your brilliant thoughts. This has been wonderful. Uh, as we are wrapping up. Uh, Let people know where they can find you online and recognizing that we're putting this out on March 13th. Do you have anything that you would like to plug or talk about? Uh, Lane, I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos. But but Thorin and Philip, you are welcome to uh, add me uh, if you'd like to shoot me a message. Uh, but you can find my uh, my podcast on PP like podcast on Twitter, underscore Lane on Instagram. Give us a follow. We're posting content pretty regularly from these issues. Uh, we'll be posting some of uh, uh, Thorin and Philip's work as well as we uh, as we release this. The next episode after this one, we're going to continue with another flashback month, and it takes us to X-Man Minus One. So the clone kid that I talked about from the Age of Apocalypse, who's Jean Grey and Scott's kid, but only from their genetic material created by Mr. Sinister that's the guy he came to our reality and had a series that lasted for 75 issues and he's still here and he's a crazy character but we're going to do one single episode on x-man minus one which is the farthest we could get from the 60s on this show and without getting real off theme our guest that day is going to be stephen grant who actually he's an acclaimed incredible writer but he wrote x-man uh the series uh years back so it's going to be a really fun episode we also have a Patreon channel for this show where we're doing single character focused episodes on obscure characters with professionals. Uh, and uh, right around the time we release this, we're gonna be doing a St. Patrick's Day episode on the bizarre character Shamrock. Uh, my guest for that one is uh, the returning guest, Trina Farrell. Uh, so as we are doing our outros, uh, let's hear from uh, from
2: Thorn first and then Philip, where can we find you online and what would you like to plug? Well, I would say that the easiest thing to do is just to Google my name because uh, it's, I am, uh, I'm on everything. I'm on Instagram and Twitter. I'm on fucking TikTok for Christ's sake. Uh, I will say nothing of consequence on either like anywhere because, um, the internet is a, annoying place to be uh, but you can absolutely reach me and you can DM me if you want um, I have I'm writing, I have so much fun stuff coming up this year, I'm writing Thor for a few more months which is the best thing ever I have a new Punisher War Journal out, by the time this is out it's going to be out uh, and I'm writing Red Sonia for 2023 which is also like, it's, it's something else but it is a lot of fun I mean, uh, so check that out.
0: and I'm, I can't wait to hear whatever the X-Men news is as well but I enjoy your work all over the place thank you Thorin uh John had to step out uh he had a phone call he had to take but John Detrick you can follow online under that name he also is uh part of the the uh podcast the avenging hour that I recently appeared on and it's a lot of fun so give John a follow as well and then uh Philip how about you
1: oh uh, yeah you can find me on Twitter at Philip CV and Instagram at Philip CV Comic Art. Uh, and then over, let's see, by this point, uh, a couple issues of X-Men Unlimited will be out of the run that I, we mentioned here that I'll be doing. Uh, in addition, we can, you can go back and read issues 60 and 61 that Thorn and I did together. I am working on a series called Phenomenosity oh, with writer Teeny Howard over on her substack. Oh my we've god! Got, we've got a couple chapters came out last year and I am wrapping up chapter three as we speak in the next couple days. And then and it's,
2: it's so good. Like oh, everyone needs to check it out immediately.
1: Thank you. Yeah, you can just Google Tini Howard's name, T I N I H O W A R D. It's on her Substack and you can read it for free. Uh, or you can subscribe and donate a little bit every month. Uh, and then I am getting ready to start work on a new creator owned book that hasn't been announced yet. And I'm not announcing it here, but it's with writer Elliot Ray Hall. Elliot is a delightful human, and has been one of my best friends for years, and is also an incredible writer. So that series probably won't be out till the end of the year, if not early next year. But I'm very excited to work on that with him, and and a million other things. Who knows? I'm I'm working on way too many things at once. So
0: uh, Philip and I are talking about a commission for my wall. I'll show you both my. Uh, I have a wall of uh, obscure X-Men characters, all done by people who've been on this show, which is. Phenomenal. So I was just emailing Philip about that today. So I, we'll, uh, we'll talk about that once it's, uh, once it's done as well. Uh, Thorin and Philip, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. I had such a blast getting to know you. Uh, we will see you all back here next time on Gray Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Gray Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, It's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Gray Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Gray Malkin Lane.